You might hear a little rattle and tingling out there. Uh, it's pouring down rain. It's August. It's about 100 degrees outside. This is unusual weather for around here. This is hurricane weather for sure. Unfortunately, around here it's also forest fire weather. Those lightning strikes. It can't ever rain enough to keep that forest from being a tinderbox ready to blow up. Um, anyway, it's a new experience for me. I'm thinking a lot about experience this week, um, and I'm getting ready to go back to teaching, and it's online. And uh, I'm trying to figure out how to make it more an experience than information because our technology makes information cheaper every minute. And uh, experience may be more dear at the same time. Or, I don't know, I'm ambivalent about it. As you know, I like to make stuff, and YouTube and my phone really facilitates that stuff. I learn a lot about music through through technology, stuff that I didn't have access to before. On the other hand, figuring things out on your own uh, was maybe a more self-reflexive process. You might have learned more about yourself by doing stuff wrong than you do by doing stuff right. I think that we are in an age where we think we value experience but we're not sure we want to get it the hard way i love the old telecasters and i make some telecasters that look like the old ones and they're kind of you know mine are kind of vintage style you know you can buy a custom shop fender telecaster that's relict you know it's beat up for about five grand, you can get a guitar that looks like it was made in the 1950s and then ruined. <laughs> oh, there's the thunder. And I don't know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, like like a lot of people, I'm attracted to those worn-out guitars. You look at an old guitar, you used to look at an old guitar, and you're like, wow, look at that old lion. That one's been to a thousand gigs, and... What you valued about it was the experience that must have been behind it. When you saw that it had a cigarette burn on the headstock, you didn't think like, oh, I want to burn mine. You thought about the story that must have gone with it. And when it happened, I mean, even though over time it becomes a part of the patina and a part of the character of the guitar, at the time when the person did it, he probably thought he was an idiot and he was probably mad. And now we make guitars to look as if they've had experience, even though they haven't. And I just think it's different. I think now when you look at those beat-up old guitars, you think like, oh, there's a relic guitar that's new. Not that it's, that it's old, because the old guitars are getting few and far between. In the 1980s, you could still buy... A 50s Telecaster for seven or eight hundred dollars. Now they're thirty thousand dollars, and they're not nearly as valuable as the Stratocasters. Anyway, the the fake age and the fake experience is something that's on them. In, in car culture, they have a thing called a rat rod, right? and and at one point. 
people would put together cars they wouldn't have paint jobs they'd have parts from this and that and they'd look a little bit rough and they were kind of cool and but they just kind of got put together with the money and the time available and they maybe aspire to be something more now people have created a style that looks banged up in motorcycles there's a motorcycle called a rat and I think that's where the word rat rod comes from but a, a rat in motorcycle terms was like those old beat up telecasters it just meant that they had a lot a lot of miles on them and they'd been fixed up sort of minimally as they went along they had like craftsman box end wrenches welded onto their broken you know clutch knobs and shift levers and things and they'd just be kind of patched up with what you had because they were kept on the road for little money and then now of course that's become a style and people try to to emulate it and and play it up. The mechanic I worked for had a, a buddy, one of his old riding buddies, come by all the time and hang out with us. And uh, and he had an old rat, an old pan head that he'd been riding forever. It was a you know, mid-50s pan. And he uh, had it since, I guess, probably the early 70s. So it wasn't particularly old. It was just his motorcycle. And he just kept it going. And it had all kinds of funky funky repairs and dents it actually had tank halves that didn't match each other they were the same size they were like three gallon bobs but they didn't weren't quite of the same vintage fallen over and uh and i thought it was really cool because you could tell it just had a million miles on it i mean those old harleys you can just keep rebuilding them over and over and over again you wear them out you rebuild them they don't, you know, they break down all the time, but they're easy to fix. I think that's what they used to say about the British Seagull motors and the probably the Volkswagen, too. And, and it was certainly true of those old Harleys. They weren't hard to get back on the road, but they'd break down a lot. Anyway, so he'd come by, and we'd look at his older at, and I'd marvel at the improvised repairs on it, some of which looked very sort of hokey and dangerous, frankly. Um, and what was cool about it was the experience that it had you know you knew some of those repairs he just patched it together with some found materials because he wanted to go drunk drive around the state or something whatever he was into so i hadn't seen this guy in a while he came by pig eye they called this guy <laughs> like, like in a pig's eye i guess i don't know he comes by in his old truck and talking to us he said oh you guys got to see the motorcycle it's looking great i'm really really fixing it up this time I'm like oh okay cool you know and hung out for a while and a couple months later he comes by on his old panhead and he's got it kind of sorted out a little bit it's it's painted it's got a repaired seat it's got tanks that match it's got a all of its fenders on it but it had a like a rattle can paint job on the frame. It was painted black, and it still had some wires hanging down. It had a had like a blue and white scallops on the tank. It's like a I don't know how to explain this. Like diamonds that were kind of a part of a hot rod style, and it looked all right. I mean, it looked like he did it in his garage with a 
with a spray can, you know. Um, and he was showing it off. He's like, oh, I got the right tanks on it now. And I got, you know, it even has a horn. He's got an old horn on it. And uh, <laughs> he's had it all, all kind of straightened out. And, and it, it was cool. I mean, it looked like a a fairly amateur restoration. It had probably been through some restorations like that before. Or maybe not. Maybe this was the first time he got together enough money to to sort of like work on all of it at one time, you know. And maybe it was the first time he had another vehicle for a while because he was an everyday rain or shine biker. Um, and anyway, after he left, I said to the mechanic, I'm like, oh man, it was so much cooler before. I wish he hadn't have done that. And he's like, oh, I'm glad you didn't say that to Pegai, man. He's so proud of that thing. That's the, it's the only thing he has in the world. And he just fixed it up and he's really proud of it. You don't, don't say that. It's his motorcycle. If he wants it to be a rat, it can be a rat. If he wants to fix it up, he can fix it up. It's, you don't. You don't uh, you don't criticize another man's motorcycle, I guess, is what I was learning. And it's interesting to me because, you know, I, I knew a lot about the old Harleys at the time. I was into them. I was interested in them, mostly because I worked with all of these guys who rode them. And so I had something to talk to them about. But I didn't ride motorcycles. I mean, I had a bad accident when I was a kid, and it scared me off of them. I swore them off for the rest of my life at about 17 years old. But I was interested in them and I had my own opinions. But I guess what happened at the end of the day is I didn't really have a right to have an opinion about Pig Eye's motorcycle because it wasn't mine. And it wasn't a, a biker. When you study history, there's a a principle called actors categories. You got to use your actors categories. You can't superimpose new categories on old actions because they'll necessarily look different if you do. And Pegai's motorcycle wasn't a rat. It was just his motorcycle. He wasn't trying to make it look crappy or beat up. He was just trying to keep it on the road because it was his only way of getting around for most of the time. When, even when he had an old truck to drive, it was the way he'd rather get around. And so really the record of the experience of that motorcycle was that it just kept going and you would fix it up and you would keep it going the best you could when you could. And if you changed the mind, your mind about how you wanted it to look, you would change how it looked. The filmmaker I'm very interested in, um, named John Cohen. He he made uh, well, he made a lot of f films, but he made a great film about a guy named Roscoe Holcomb called The High Lonesome Sound. And I've always been sort of fascinated by it. I've been sort of fascinated by by uh, John Cohen to begin with. I mean, he's a he was in a band called the New Lost City Ramblers that started in New York City in the 50s. They were part of the folk revival and uh, and then he became a kind of important counterculture figure in the in the 60s. There's a Grateful Dead song, Uncle John's Band. Come here, Uncle John's Band, by the riverside. And Uncle John's Band was the Ramblers, the New, York, New Lost City Ramblers, Ramblers and uh, John Cohen was the Uncle John. He was a sort of, uh, you know, 
a sort of elder statesman of the counterculture in that way. And in this movie about Roscoe Holcomb, who was a, a rural banjo player from the coal mining country of Kentucky, and the cover of it, and a lot of the pictures and the cover of the, of the record, the CDs that came with it, um, show him wearing a suit and tie and holding a banjo, wearing a nice hat. He's gaunt, skinny, wearing, you know, uh, some kind of horn, Buddy Holly kind of glasses. And uh, John Cohen tells some interesting stories about the photograph and about the process of photographing some of the people for that film. And I think it's it's interesting and important to consider. In an interview, he, he talks about asking Roscoe Holcomb, you know, they, they uh, these guys, I guess, like me, when they hang around their house in the day and they're working around, they wear old clothes. I look like a hobo half the time, you know. And I'll go to the store like that and stuff, and, and I don't know, I probably maybe should work on dressing a little bit more like a grown-up. But when they would get their picture taken, they would put on a suit. And uh, John Cohen tells the story of asking, like, how come, you know, you don't dress... When I go to get my camera out or get the... You know, go to make a film, you guys put on a suit and tie. And they said, well, John, how do you dress when you get your picture taken? And he had a, just kind of a, a revelation that, like, yeah, you know, he thinks he's, like, documenting some certain kind of lifestyle, but these people aren't necessarily different in the way they present themselves than he is, and they're certainly not any less self-conscious about how they represent themselves to others than than you know city people or sophisticated people are there's a there's a scene from the simpsons that reminds me of that cletus the slack jaw yokel says darlene's taken up with that photographer feller what come to document our squalor and uh and you know roscoe holcomb and his people recognize that like you're not here to document our squalor we live in the way we live. Our experience is based on our categories, not yours. And the superimposition of your categories over ours is a misrepresentation of who we are. And and I think that that's interesting. Uh, and and I, I'm not suggesting that John Cohen came with the intentions of that. I think he's a very sensitive filmmaker before this. And, and I think it's actually kind of really uh, somewhat remarkable that he's candid about sort of like you know misstepping or or understanding what the sort of you know politics of representation that were at work there were um, he also talks about you know that that a lot of the stuff that the people you're looking at do you again have to sort of accept their categories he mentions uh, that that you know to to I don't know, sophisticated New York City art world people like him that playing these old songs or thinking about this, there might be some element of kitsch to it. There might be something they might they might be participating in it somewhat ironically, but the culture that generated it was not nostalgic, kitschy, or ironic about it. He talks about how, you know, 
he might not have a plastic tablecloth with a picture of Jesus on it, but the people he films and travels with and talks to about music and the music that he loves do have that, and it's not ironic. And and I think that that's uh, an important thing to remember. I guess when we're also when we're thinking about actors categories, one of the things I try to um, ask my students to do when we study rural people or people who seem to be educated in a different way or people who look in a different way or live a different way, I try to implore them to look at these people as subjects of knowledge rather than objects of study. We're not here to study them, see what they're all about. We're here to learn from them. And there's a certain overlap between those categories, but I think it's important and to not sort of correct them is important. There's a cringy interview between uh, Lightning Hopkins and John Lomax where, and this comes from the Les Blank uh, made a great film uh, in the late 60s called The Blues According to Lightning Hopkins and uh, this interview is in there. It's a, it's a really film that's worth watching. It's interesting to see Lightning Hopkins, a rural Texas blues man, living in a rural African-American Texas life, complete with black rodeos and farm work and that sort of stuff. It's a it's a great film on its own. Anyway, there's there's a blues song that says, I want to go home, but I ain't got sufficient clothes. And uh, Lomax thinks that Hopkins is saying, I ain't got some fishing clothes. And he's sort of insisting that, um, you know, fishing clothes is what Lightning Hopkins is saying. And he's sort of insisting that fishing clothes is, uh, you know, a colloquialism for fancy clothes or nice clothes or something like that. I don't want to beat up on Alan Lomax. I don't think he's, I don't think he has the, quite the eye the sensitivity or the intelligence of John Cohen, frankly. But I don't think he's like a, a bad guy, maybe. But he's just superimposing on Hopkins this idea that his experience trumps Hopkins's experience and that within the African-American community, there are these sort of like colloquialisms or made-up words that are unique and colorful and interesting. And and there's no doubt that there are some of those or many of those. I mean, you know, think about the whole jazz language that Louis Armstrong and and then later, of course, uh, Lester Young really kind of invent. But that's not what's going on here. He's saying sufficient clothes. I want to go home, but I ain't got sufficient clothes. And it's part of a long-standing trope in the blues um, it's kind of like I want to go where the weather suits my clothes. Basically, what they're saying is that you can't change the color of your skin. I wish that I could go home, but I'm black, and it's difficult for me to travel there. And I think that Lomax just doesn't learn the right lesson from this because he wants to superimpose his... I guess I would say in terms of this podcast, his information over the top of somebody else's experience. The reason I'm thinking about this, I guess, you know, I've maybe thought 
that it's my job to sort of train my students in this sort of learning and this sort of sensitivity. But, you know, on the other hand, I, that may be me superimposing my categories on them too. You know, I ultimately learned all of this stuff from better teachers than myself. And those teachers were like, you know, the people I've mentioned, John Cohen, Les Blank, the people who have made these films. And more important than that, from the people themselves, from the Lightning Hopkins, Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, June Carter. June Carter's got to know more about country music than I'll ever learn in my life. So I guess what i got to remember is that if I've trusted the art and the artists to instruct me and to teach me the categories, then I just need to get out of the way and have the same faith in my students that I have in myself.